Although the name Phil Gould is associated primarily with Level 42, his career as a musician goes much deeper. He started out playing in bands along with his brother while living on the Isle of Wight when he was a teen. Having studied percussion at the Royal Academy of Music, he later found his way onto the charts with the band M and their worldwide hit, Pop Music, as well as a stint with the band Roxy Music. He departed Level 42 in 1987 and took a lengthy hiatus from music in the mid-90s and 2000s. He finally returned in 2009 to deliver his solo debut titled Watertight, a collection of 11 songs and features ex-Level 42 bandmate Mike Lindup and Berenice Scott on lead vocals. And there's more on the way, as Phil is working on even more new music that could be released later this year.
Inside Music Cast welcomes Phil Gould. Hey, Phil, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks, Rick. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Yeah, and I also wanted to mention that uh, along with Eddie and me, we've got Uwe Reith, our correspondent in Constance, Germany, joining us as well. Hi, how are you doing? <laughs> hey, Uwe, how are you doing, man? Hi, Phil. I'm feeling fine. Thank you. This is cool. I love this. It's very international. I'm in, <laughs> I'm in southeast London. I'm in, in uh, Nunhead, which is... It's near Brixton in South East London, in a very kind of hip and undercover yeah. area. So it's a very international call, this. Well, very cool. I want to start off by saying, you know, as, as a child, we're going to go way back. And, you know, as a child, you had, you know, quite an upbringing, especially in terms of where your feet were planted. I mean, you were, you were born in Hong Kong, but your parents traveled pretty extensively. And, you know, you have other siblings that were also born, I think, in Canada, Japan, and in the UKs. And I just wanted to ask you about your parents and their, their sort of globetrotting and, and how you eventually ended up back in the uh, Isle of Wight. Well, yeah, my mum. My mum was one of these. I don't know what what happened really, but she just got. She met my father at the end of the war, and like you know, in the, in the late forties, and they just decided to go. You know, she's one of those women that could just do that, and so she got on a train with on a, a boat and a train. With my dad went across America, and my one of my uncles left the the, the United uh, in England at the same time and lived in uh, Vancouver or some like that. So he, they, they, I think he moved Vancouver then to down to uh, Del Mar near I think you know um, where's that near San Diego, and like. It was just incredible, the story, that she just would do that. It's very unusual for the time that people had that kind of attitude, but mm -hmm. she was kind of quite advanced. So she went across America, North America, and then my father kind of gravitated towards Asia, like Hong Kong and later, uh, you know, J or Japan and later Hong Kong, because he, he, was, a, he was a journalist, so he, he, he could... It has a lot of work as a, as a freelance journalist at that time. This was an age before Reuters and all the agencies. So yeah, he, right. he he made a lot of money. You know, until the end of the fifties, that was the the thing to be. And then all, all of a sudden, agencies came in, um, and so we just we're moving around. We came back. She came back to the UK, and and you know, an, an older brother's born in England. Then another brother born in sort of Vancouver, and then. Uh, you know, uh, my sister's born in Tokyo, then back to the UK. One brother born on the Isle of Wight, where, where we were eventually raised by my mum. That's and that's where my mum actually came from originally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then she went back out to Hong Kong. But I was only six months old when she finally came back to the UK. She had, at this point, she had like five kids. She said, "I've got to settle down." You know. Yeah. So, but it was interesting growing up in that environment because the Isle of Wight was what it was. It was a very, you know, it's a backwater kind of environment, but it was it was very beautiful. There was sand and sea, and uh, it was a tourist kind of place, the town I grew up in. So very quiet winters and very busy in the summer. But because my dad didn't come back with us, she was a single parent. My dad stayed out there. They actually kind of separated, really. But it was like the idea that we existed in the world beyond the world that we grew up in. I don't know if that makes sense. I, we just knew that we were, we belonged out there. We, di we didn't have any idea that we would stay on. And even as young kids, we knew that we were going to be out there in the world because it was, in a way, that's where we came from. It's kind of, we came from all over the place. So it's an interesting psychology, you know, to, to grow up like that. It was, and my father would send back these talking heads pieces. Um, he worked for CBS or something and do a piece on ninja in ninjas in Japan. And, and we'd get these 16 millimeter films come back with sound, you know, and we'd see my dad on the screen. And that was my relationship with him <laughs> as a kid. It was a strange, it was a strange upbringing in many ways, but it was, it was interesting, you know, interesting. Yeah. Well, I think you, you just obviously mentioned your father was a journalist, but your mom was a, your mom was a film critic. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, I mean, this is interesting. Doug. I mean, she was my, my my grandfather was a poet. You know, he was a published poet in England. Um, 
uh, and my my mum had all those traits. You just could, you know. And and I was rubbish at school, but I I, I was top in English every year. You know, it's one of those things. We just had that in the family. But she was a she sort of got into fil- you know film criticism while she was in I think more more in Hong Kong towards the end. Uh, I mean, they also used to hang out the Tokyo Press Club, which was quite a a, a notable um, organization. Mm-hmm. And my dad was actually number thirty three on the press club. You know, I think Walter Cronkite was maybe twenty one or something. You know, and he was wow. he was wow. friends with Walter Cronkite. It was all that kind of thing. And now there's like maybe two thousand accredited journalists over there. It's not many. Yeah. But my, I got I had pictures growing up of my mum. You know how it is with your parents. I mean, you know, you grow up thinking that you know they they were never cool. You know, but I had pictures of my mum in these cocktail dresses with pearls with with cocktail drinks with Gary Cary Grant and or Danny Kay you know or Ava Gardner wow. you know god's sake <laughs> my mum and dad living this life this was a you know I was as a kid she she was my mum I was growing up in Isle of Wight and she was a single parent working all god's god's hours to raise us but but there was these glamorous pictures images black and white beautiful black and white shots of that era and the 50s were I don't know if you've ever seen the film Jazz on a Summer's Day, you know, when Anita O'Day comes out and sings that, those tunes and she's dressed in this beautiful dress with a white feather boa hat and gloves. I mean, the 50s tended to be a lot more glamorous. Than, than, <laughs> I don't know, everybody looked more cool. I don't know, people looked generally just on, on the street a lot more glamorous then. I don't know why. Yeah. But she looked stunning, you know. So it was an interesting thing to be reminded that she had this other life before us. And, mm-hmm. uh, and it, yeah, it was. It was. So she had that life, and and so of course when we when we were um, expressing any kind of creativity, she just, you know, just opened the door to it. Yeah, if you want to do that, yeah, go and do that. If you want to buy play drums, you know, he, you know, he's fifty quid. Go and get himself a drum kit. Get on with it. You know, she never <laughs> she never stood in our way because she understood that whole idea of expressing yourself. You know. Yeah. So was she? Um, you know, when it comes down to the musical influence. You know, was that uh, was that absorbed from your mom's openness, as you're saying, to hey, go explore, buy yourself some drums, buy yourself uh, a guitar or something like that? Where where did uh, where did the prompting of the experimenting with the music and opening the door to you? Uh, where did that come from? Not really sure. I mean, I just think we were. Uh, I don't know. We had that. We had a very because of my my mum being a single parent. At working, well, I mean, you couldn't believe the hours that woman worked. And so, of course, the house was empty a lot of the time. My brother would, and I would come in from school, and she wasn't there. We had a couple of hours, so we could we and we were lucky because the money she had at the end, of, you know, when she left my father, she could buy a good sized house. I mean, later she struggled with money, but the, initially we had money, so we had this big house, so we could fill it. We were very lucky like that. We could fill this house with whatever we could fill it with. So we, me and my brother, started banging on things, and 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 my brother started playing guitar. And my older brother played bass in a band, and my two older brothers were DJs so it was just music around and my mum was a huge classical uh, you know music buff so I grew up on everything from Liszt Schumann Beethoven and, and all that and was that was in the, the culture and she was very open to uh, rock music in the 60s so we had all these records like you know Sgt. Pepper and even Cream albums and stuff you know mm. and, when, and when the singer song when I became started to become really alert musically the singer songwriter era was in full swing so she had you know, she had great taste. You know, Joni Mitchell, you know, James Taylor, you know, Cat Stevens, you know, Paul Simon. You know, I grew up with the, the, the cream of the songwriters of that era. So I was Leonard Cohen even. You know, I mean, it's a very, very lucky mm-hmm. to have this kind of spirit around. And to this day, I'm still, you know, really, if you sit me down with somebody with an acoustic guitar and a voice, like I really love Bon Iver, you know, recently. And I, I would, I'll happily not listen to drums, you know. <laughs> I'll happily listen to that kind of vibe because that's really where I became musically on you know online you know I, I was into that singer songwriter era and then and then I grew through that into the bands that were going on and then later you know all the other things but it was an amazing 
uh, space to be around. So, I, I, you know, she wouldn't be around. I had I had this all these albums, and I just pour over these albums, you know. And 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 what I guess the the thing about that was because of my uh, feeling about English. Um, I, I love the language and the lyrics. These these people were great lyricists. I was drawn into that world, you know, so mm-hmm. I immediately wanted to start, you know, from the age of 14, I was writing, even before I actually played drums, I was, I was actually writing poems and lyrics and stuff like that. So, yeah, well, that's, cool. how, that's, how that, that's how that came about, you know, so I was, so I was very fortunate in, in having a kind of an open, open vibe like that, you know. Yeah. Well, you know, you just mentioned a bunch of uh, artists that uh, uh, you're kind of into. You mentioned Bon Iver and, and Sigur Rós. I think before we actually started the interview, you talked about them. But and uh, uh, this is in terms of the the drum kit. And you're a self-taught drummer, right? Yeah. Well, tell me a little about the music that inspired you to, to start playing. I mean, the bands or songs that you know, that I guess would get your adrenaline going to get you behind the set and start practicing. Well, I was I, I was always drawn to I was banging things, you know. So I was drawn. I must have been drawn to the drums from an early age. And actually, the, for some reason, my school, my my primary school, gave me a snare drum, which is an old calf-headed thing, which my brother smashed up and turned into frisbees. So you, was, I, I should have started playing drums about four years before I did. Except for him, he's broke up my. You know, that would have been the sign, wouldn't it? Like to get a snare drum. I was really upset about that, as you can imagine. But I was, I was always banging stuff. So I actually was kind of playing before I even started playing in my, in my mind. But I t- I, there was a turning point moment. I was thinking about this. I think from the age of 13, I was thinking about it seriously. And then when I was 14, I saw a picture of Bill Bruford on the inside cover of the, the Fragile album by uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. And I don't, you, you don't even know there's, you know, the, the vinyl cover with the, with the booklet inside. Yep. And there's this guy on stage with this beautiful Ludwig kit and it just shining under the lights. And I thought... You know that's me. You know that's 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 what I want to do. Okay. Like Ringo said that about when he walked past. You know that all these everybody in Liverpool was playing guitars, and he walked past a drum, a, a, a music shop. All he would look at was the drums, and it was it's that kind of thing. You know, for some reason you're drawn to these things. I don't know what it is, but I I just love that picture of Bill Bruford. So from that moment onwards, I was banging on to my mum about getting a kit and within six months I had a kit you know so oh. it was it was it that was a seminal moment and he was one of the first influences too you know and that era was an incredible era to be I mean I'm just I feel so blessed I became uh you know musically uh, you know aware and, and into it in that early 70s period it was so diverse and so incredibly exciting you know um and you know if you wanted great pop music or you wanted fusion or, or great jazz I mean you could have everything you know so uh uh I was very blessed to grow up there. So, you know, the, I think that, that picture of Bill Bruford is the, is the moment, you know, when I get, went boing, mm-hmm. that's it, you know. Very yeah. cool. Well, we know that you're a very accomplished drummer, you know, um, but you're also a, a, a good pianist and keyboard player and, um, you know, exper- experimenting with new technologies when they all came out and that type of things. Uh, but, uh, you know, what, what came first for you? I mean, obviously the drums. I mean, it sounds as if the drums preceded the, the experimenting with the piano or is that just an assumption? Well, yeah, they did. Well, actually, I played piano first. I had piano lessons when I was a kid. Then I played the clarinet and the trumpet, and none of those things sort of stuck with me. I think I have a feeling that, you know, the, the reason they didn't stick with me is because all of those three things, the piano teacher that I had, his house smelled terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and the clarinet and the trumpet, the, the, the music cases smelled terrible. So it kind of put me off, you know, because you'd hire these instruments, you know. And I, and I don't know why I was really a sensitive kid. I don't know what it is, the smell of these things. But when I got... Um, when I got my drum kit, within within a year, I managed to save up some money to buy, to, half the money to buy a really 
really a good kit and i went to london and that was when spectrum came out by billy cobham so there's this mm -hmm. amazing impact that this this guy he was the guy that in you know just blew that generation apart really and he had a plastic kit so i bought this really expensive plastic kit my mum put up the money for the other half but i had to work in this terrible factory job i left school when i was 16 my education was rubbish uh, i was only good at english you know um so for two years i worked in this terrible job to pay off that kit at the end of those two years i had ambition because <laughs> i i you know i was doing printed circuits and doing like five pins in the same printed circuit board for three months and i, and I was going well i'm not going to do this man you know if i've got one thing that i'm i, I can I, I relate to and i love it you know i'm doing it all you know i'm playing all the time and i and i got really serious then so i i I met this great musician on the Isle of Wight who was actually brilliant. He, he studied at Berkeley in San Francisco, uh, not you know, not a Boston one. And, and he was, he took me under his wing and said, "Right, you're going to study piano and you're going to get to music college." Within two years, I got to the Royal Academy. You know, I just he just put me through the biggest crash course in history. I did at A level, which is what you would do at 18. I did that in a year. I got to grade five on the piano within 18 months. I just absolutely went for it because I knew that. I I had you know like um, maybe a lot of kids today don't have that where they have the the shock of what their future might be if they don't make use of their the one thing they might be good at you know and I and I just got my groove on and and uh, worked you know eight hours a day for two years to to get off the Isle of Wight and get to London you know mm -hmm. so that was the reason why initially I did it and then uh, when I was studying A level this guy teacher said because then I was struggling to catch up so the teacher said well look in terms of harmony go and get Songs of Praise the hymn book it's all got all the Bach chorales and it got all the uh, hymns and that will give you all your inversions and all your chords and, and that's really where my harmony comes from I, re I write it's like most I think most pop music is uh, sort of great hymn chords like Elton John or Paul McCartney they they come from that school of you know you know first and second inversions and and that ecclesiastical sound in the chords particularly Elton John with that sort of gospely tint which is kind, you know kind of a church music thing so I, I I just came through that and and luckily got enough awareness musically to when you know to the point that when we formed a band I could actually contribute musically and um, have a voice you know so it was great and I'm not a great, I'm not a, I'm not an improvising pianist, but I, I've got quite a good chordal knowledge now. So I, hopefully I'm a better writer now, and I can do that, you know. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, so it's great. I'm glad I have that. Well, you got involved with uh, various bands when you were in high school, and, and I think you were playing steady gigs around the time you were you were 18. But I was curious, you know, I don't know which band you want to talk about or which or what this will pertain to, but what types of music were you performing with these bands? Well, very briefly, I mean, like the first band, my brother's band I joined when I was 15, is a folk rock band. Mm -hmm. It was called, called Grey Flood. It's brilliant. And because uh, Fairport Convention and the, in the American folk rock and then the English folk rock scene was very vibrant then. It was a very powerful period. And, mm -hmm. and in, in a way, a lot of the pop music at that time, like Lindisfarne or McGuinness Flint or Fairport, was for a period was like folk rock, you know, about an 18-month period. So uh, that was an important thing. And, and there was a drummer called Dave Mattox, who is uh, still one of my drum heroes an english drummer who had a lot of technique and, and rudiments and beautiful feel and great ideas and he was an inspiration so i, I realized if i want to play what he's doing with his hands i have to study instruments you know the instrument properly like you know rudiments and that kind of thing so that was very cool and then it was you know led zeppelin doobie brothers inspired type things you know those bands that were playing kind of funk rock uh, and then led zeppelin covers and stuff like that and mm -hmm. you know brought to be wild these sort of things so it was just like local loads of local bands the first band was actually a proper band where the, the guys in the band, the older guys, wrote the music, which is very, very cool. Um, the other bands were cover bands until I started playing with uh, Mark King. And, you know, I met Mark King when I was 18 or maybe maybe 18. He was a year younger. 
And I was playing in a band. He, he sat in on drums and blew me off, basically, because he's actually a brilliant drummer. Mm-hmm. And uh, we formed this really strong relationship. So we were always band hopping, and he would take over from me, I'd take over from him. And then we would start you know, playing together and doing stuff uh, on the Isle of Wight. So, I mean, the thing about Level 42, I don't want to jump to that too soon, but, you know, but the thing about Level 42 is if we were actually playing together from our mid, my late teens. It wasn't mm-hmm. a band that started when I was 22. It actually... You know, I left that band when I was 30. We we actually playing together for nearly 13 years. And I was playing with my brother for 15 years. So it was it was actually going on then. So it was a very small scene, the Isle of Wight. So me and my brother, uh, he played guitar, and Mark, were, 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 were kind of, we just gravitated towards each other because we, we seemed to be on the same page. Mm-hmm. And we seemed to be able to keep up with each other. But, uh, but the scene was pretty vibrant. I mean, in the summer, we could play seven days a week you know we, we were we did three nights at this place and four nights at that or three nights at that place and we ran our own uh club on a friday night we would get like 1500 people in that place you know it was it was amazing you know and that, but that was different then i mean every every hotel every bar would have a band in those days you know on the isle of Wight. it was it was that kind of scene that was the world that we grew up in so i, I despair for young musicians in a way because like that they, they, this is the problem they have is that how do they get their chops together when there's so few places to play I mean, you know, it's tricky, but in those in the, on the Isle of Wight, which is a backwater, there wasn't a musical scene like you would have in London or any other major centre. But you could play all the time, which meant you could, you know, at least get your your act together. You know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have a question, Phil. Uh, was Mark King kind of an influence to you in terms of his drumming skills when he brought his drums into the band, and not his bass? <laughs> yeah, he was actually because. Uh, Mark, you know, Mark was Mark had been playing drums since he was like six. Been playing guitar since he was nine. So he was like, he was another kind of, you know, he's still to this day is one of the most naturally gifted musicians I've ever met. And he, you know, the fact he can sing really well, he could just do anything. And I mean, it's his drumming was extraordinary. But you know, the thing was, you know, Mark knows that he, I, I, I've said this to him. So he's, I'm not saying anything behind his back. You know, he, he actually plays drums like he plays bass. <laughs> So he he plays all the time. I mean, he, Mark Mark can play a great groove. I'm I'm, I'm being sorry, like like you know just being humorous here, but like Mark is obviously great. But Mark, when he plays the thumb stuff in the early days, would really play a lot, you know. And he played drums like that. So a lot of the bass players would prefer to play with me on the Isle of Wight because I I was more like Richie Hayward or Dave Mattix or Levin Helm, all the guys or Harvey Mason. The guys that were inspiring me were more. They could play really great pocket, you know. And and I was gravitating towards that idea of drumming. And even though being influenced by Cobham and Tony Williams in terms of freedom, I never really ever, I knew I'd never have that kind of freedom. I never, I wasn't seeking it. So I was, Mark liked to play with me because I was kind of, I gave him all this space and I, and I, 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 was, I was happy to do that. But Mark played the drums a little bit like he played bass. But he opened the door to my mind as to what you could do. At the age of 16, he was doing stuff with, which was extraordinary. And he, if he'd have gone on and been a drummer, he would have been, a kind of in he would he was very very hip and very very he had an incredibly agile mind i think he could have gone to the level of you know maybe not tony williams but he could have been one of those guys you know he was mm-hmm. he could have been a really great drummer if he'd have gone down that route he would have been incredible mm-hmm. so you know when you're around that kind of talent you it's quite an eye-opener you know and i've been i've been playing when i met him when i was 18 i've been playing drums three years he was he'd been playing drums since he was you know for 12 years so you know that's that's something different. You know, uh, you know, it, when you've been playing drums that long, it's, it steeps gets into your system. So, but it, it made me work a lot harder, and I and I went back to the drawing board and lots of things. And 
Yeah, it was, he was an inspiration. He actually was an influence on me, Mark. And I still, actually, I actually still, uh, there's a couple of grooves he did. There was this parallel inversion thing he did as a groove, which I, I stole and I, I use to this day. This is a Mark King groove, and I'll look mm -hmm. to it one day and I'll, I'll show people what it is. But it was just, he actually is, he was, he is brilliant, you know. So he was a brilliant drummer. You know, a minute ago, you, um, you had uh, mentioned just briefly the Royal Academy where you studied and, um, uh, the way I understand it is that you were enrolled there for a couple of years when you were called away by, uh, I think, a TV show to be a part of, I think, the show's band or something to that that nature. And well, the th uh, the the thing that happened after six months of being in London. I mean, I went to London to be all serious about um, mm -hmm. music. You know, I was I'm going to be like Deodato and that kind of thing. And uh, um, within six months, I got a call to do a TV show just for for a, a song called Pop Music, right? Uh, which was written by Robin Scott. He was the guy. And 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 on that TV show was because that was recorded in Paris that song and and Wally Badaru was the keyboard player on it and and that was a connection I, I met through Robin I met the, the sax player Gary Barnacle who played on Level Forty Two Records and also Wally Badaru who was the seminal figure and and without Wally we, we would never have been what we were you know he was the key figure in the whole thing and it was an incredible break you know I was uh, so I went to London to be all serious and then within six months I'm doing Top of the Pops doing a pop song and. In all the all the musicians I left behind the Isle of Wight who said, "Oh, you know, why why do you want to be why do you want to study and all this sort of stuff and be serious?" They were they were gutted because I was on t I was on the biggest TV show in the UK and I didn't even want to do it, you know. But I mean, what? But well, that was incredible because that after I did those TV shows, pop music was a huge hit. Yeah, it ended up being a Christmas number one in in America, I think, in December 1979. It was it was an extraordinary break. And I ended up, you know, the year before I was doing a holiday camp on the Isle of Wight before I left to, to go to London, the music college. The following year I was in Montreux at the Queen Studio, Mountain Studios, d recording an album, hanging out with David Bowie, you know. Bloody hell. It's like, that doesn't happen, does it? You know, the idea that you could actually make it any, from anywhere in the world is, is, is extraordinary, you know, that you have that dream. But coming from the Isle of Wight, it's just an, and it's just an impossible dream. You'd never do anything with music, you know. So it was an extraordinary break. And on the back of that connection with Wally, uh, the following year, I did the second M album, and and Mark, I asked, I asked Robin to bring Mark in, and so that was the beginning of Level Forty Two, really, because me and Mark were a rhythm section with Wally Badaru on keyboards, and that was the beginning of it. And after that, well, at the same time, we released our first twelve inch. So, the, the Wally Badaru connection was the biggest break. Uh, apart from us meeting on the Isle of Wight together, because essentially me, Mark, and my brother all left to go to London at the same time, and I met Mike Lindup at Music College, uh, and, and not the one I was studying at, but another one I'd, I'd studied at part time before. And then we were just jamming together, and then bang, we went Wally. You know, Wally came in, and that was it. It was just so we, we expected when we went to London to sort of all join different bands or form other bands, but we we realised that we were the only connection, strong connection we had was with each other. So we, we we just got back together, started jamming, and then it grew out of that. It's an extra, it's an extraordinary break. I mean, we were so lucky. Okay, we worked hard. We worked. We put ourselves. We got ourselves to London. Slept on floors. We had no money or social life as really. We did all that stuff, you know. And we put ourselves in that position where it was more likely to happen, you know. So we we take credit for that. But the reality was, we had amazing breaks. You know, we had incredible things happened. Uh, so. We were, we were incredibly lucky how it happened. We we put out a 12-inch single with our first, with a tiny independent record label in North London, pressed 3,000 copies. It sold 3,000 copies. We licensed to Polydor, which is in a big label in England at that time, 
and sold 60,000 copies under license, and they gave us a five-album deal. Wow. It's, it's extraordinary. <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't happen like that. Is, you know. hmm. So, we, you know, looking back, I feel more and more blessed, you know, as I, as with, yeah. as I get older, and I realize that it was an amazing thing to have happened, and, um, you know, incredibly lucky, and I'm, I'm much more, instead of thinking about some of the darker things that happen, I feel much more blessed and, and, and just always... Um, uh, you know, I just, I just, I just reflect on the, on the, 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 the joy of it. You know, the mm-hmm. actual sort of incredible experience it was. Mm-hmm. Right. Hey, Phil, uh, let's take a quick break, and I want to check out a track from your solo album called Watertight, and uh, this is a track called Color of My Pain from Phil Gould, our guest today on Inside Music Cast. i 
You know, um, Phil, is just hearing you speak about the timing and the, and the breaks, you know, isn't that what this whole music thing is all about? I mean, can you imagine? You can probably count so, so many amazing talents, singers, writers, and that are still waiting for that one break, and they've been working so hard over the years. And it's all about the timing and, and the luck of, uh, of, of who you meet and who cross paths with you. I mean, when I hear you saying that, you know, uh, it was uh, Mark King that played with you on the second album, for for M, I mean, just that collaboration there when you broke off and and there you were, you were launching your 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 first uh, first tracks. I mean, what uh, with Wally, uh, um, that must be a, an incredible luck, as you're saying, you know. It was. I mean, you know, I, I think with, I think you know, with these things, like you know, I, the, I was in a strange situation because just as I went to the Royal Academy, my girlfriend at the time, you know, got pregnant, and I and there was a moment where I went, you know, I should be responsible. I should stay on the Isle of Wight. I could play holiday camps, and I, I was earning huge money at the time, you know, weekly with these these dreadful holiday. Camps. I mean, it, the, the music's dreadful, you know. I mean, that's no getting away from it, and it, it and it's the musicians are okay, but it's not. It's it's, it's a bit soul destroying to do that. But you know, I can understand musicians just having to do that, make money, and I, and I would do. I would have done that if there was no alternative, you know. But I had a moment where I, I had passed the audition to go to the Royal Academy. I had to get off the Isle of Wight. I had to do this, so it was a struggle for both of us. She stayed on the Isle of Wight and initially raised my my son. And, you know, but I knew that I had to go then. If I'd have waited two or three years or waited five years, it mm -hmm. would not it would not have worked. I had to go then. And that's the thing. You know, you have these choices in life and you have to take some risk um, because it's your journey, isn't it? I mean, you, you know, you, I might have gone and slept on floors in London and had, you know, lived on nothing for three years like, you know, you do when you're a student and then struggling. And, and nothing could have happened, but it would still be an important step. But it would have still been my journey. And I always had, a, I think I always had a soulful connection to music and loved it enough to justify putting myself through those things. I think I say that to a lot of young young musicians I meet nowadays and because of the you know the problems with the music industry copyright problems and people not getting that the the money isn't what it was and and music session musicians aren't being paid what they were. I, I say to young musicians you, you you should not do this unless you're really passionate about this unless you love it so much you're prepared to put up with all the rubbish that goes with it because you know, it's quite likely you won't make it. You know, quite likely, even if you do make it, you won't make loads of money. You know, so I think unless you have passion and a soulful connection to this whole experience, you know, don't bother. And that one thing that me, Mark, and my brother had, we were so we were just totally connected and mad about music and would stay up all night drinking coffee, talking about music and playing music. And, and so we, we had that, you know, so we knew that we were, we, we, we were going to, be musicians, even if we had to come back to the Isle of Wight and just make it uh, a job, you know, it was, but we had that moment when we left. So, and luckily the breaks followed, but the fact that we were in that situation in London available, uh, you know, cause there certainly were breaks weren't going to happen on the Isle of Wight. But, so we went to the major center of music at that time, which was London. Now in England, it's more diverse because you have Bristol, you have like Manchester, you have Liverpool, you have other situations. But London was the capital of music then, and and you had to be there. And we were there, and some and, and things happened. So, um, but it, you know, like like I said, still we are still feel incredibly fortunate mm -hmm. because not only did we find um, we we. Uh, we just so happened to be playing a kind of music where the scene was happening in London. We didn't know anything about it—the Brit funk scene that the, the journalists called it. I mean, they always have to think of a name, don't they? But like, we, it was a first generation of English kids, British kids, that were, I think, genuinely funky because they'd grown up on. It wasn't like play that funky music, white boy, you know, mid seventies, 
like listening to it. I mean, the average white band, sorry about that. The, you know, forgive me. The average white band and bands like Kokomo were absolutely incredibly funky. But we, we'd grown up with Stevie Wonder. We'd grown up with James Brown. We'd grown up with, you know, Sly, Parliament, Funkadelic. And we had that in our blood. You know, we, we, so by 1981, you know, there were all these British kids coming up in their early 20s who were then, you know, they were steeped in that music. It wasn't like an affectation. They'd grown up with it, you know. So it was this scene happening. And we, and we just released a record. All of a sudden, we were... We were playing three thousand seater venues with all these other bands, like all you know these these multi band gigs, because there was a huge scene in London. We didn't even have to make an audience. You know, <laughs> the smallest gigs we were playing on a on release of our first album would be five six hundred people, not to fifty people. So on that score as well, we were incredibly lucky because there was a ready made scene we just walked into, and they loved us. You know. So we became one of their one of the Brit funk bands, along with I don't know if you know the names of the other bands, but like bands like Shack Attack or yeah. Light, Light of the World, or these other you know links. There was all these groups that were doing the same, you know, doing different versions of the same kind of thing. So it was amazing, you know. And like we, you know, we we stole heavily, you know, we stole. I mean, um, there's one of the tunes we did where I, uh, you know, totally stole uh, the, the drum part from Lopsy Lou by Sandy Clark, and the riff is basically that. You know, we were borrowing so much from, and I was particularly borrowing from Andy Newmark with Sly Stone. I just thought he was, I mean, you know, in the early early days, I actually calmed down very quickly because we were writing in the studio, and, I, and my drum parts in the early days were very, very simple because I was just leaving room for all the things that were going on. But I, I was inspired by those guys. You know, you, you that's all you can do is to go into the studio and then kind of try and emulate the things you've grown up with. But you know, I'm I'm just I'm just meandering here. Stop me. <laughs> no, that's great. No, no, <laughs> no, this is great. No, no, the, you're, you're touching on some neat things that we want to sort of expand on a little bit. You're talking about we talked about the chemistry of the band, and you guys used to stay up all night and just talk music. And now you're touching on on the collaborating and the writing, the drum parts, and that type of thing. Um, you know, so so tell us about the songwriting duties. How do they change over the course from the beginning to level forty two to the middle? Uh, who who is contributing to the melodies, the rhythms? Uh, how did Mark take uh, to this how did the collaboration begin to sort of uh, develop well it's very I mean I think uh, like uh, uh, everything to do with that band it's, I, mean, I just want to say this because it's very I think it's actually quite an extraordinary thing like Mark wanted to be a drummer so he ends up being a singing bass player my, my brother was actually playing bass in a band and playing sax in another band and then he goes back to the guitar for Level 42 because actually the original guitarist for Level 42 was Dominic Miller who's, who plays with Sting now right. yeah. so he was, he was he was at college with Mike Lindup the keyboard player, and Mike was a percussion student at the Guildhall. He wasn't. He was, his first study wasn't keyboards. He was actually a composition percussion student. So he ends up playing keyboards. It's really weird, you know. And like I'll tell you, there was a, a fantastic moment in the studio because we 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 did this backing track, um, and I knew this guy that ran the record shop. The first single was "Love Meeting Love," and it's a song called "Love Meeting Love." But Mark had this riff, was really cool. And I said I said to this guy around the record shop, "You should come down here as you know rehearsing because." We got this groovy. He was releasing all these twelve inches. You got this groovy tune, and he liked this riff. And he said, "You put a melody on that and lyrics. Well, I'll record it." And we got to the studio, and our idea when we got to the studio to record this track was that we should get a singer in. And and at the end of the day of recording the track, the guy said, "Well, why don't you try singing it?" So I had a go, and it was really bad. My brother had a go, and it's a little bit better, but it's not so great. Mike Lindup's a great musician, so his voice was really in tune. But you know, it's not the strongest voice, but it sounded good. Mark sang it, and it sounded brilliant. So like the guy said, well, let's put that on the record. So we release it, <laughs> and it sells all these copies. So all of a sudden, Mark has to go from his mentality of being a drummer to now he's a lead singing beat bass player. 
and then we and we get a five album deal you know <laughs> so it's absolutely extraordinary so that mentality was there you know it's about stepping up you know so when we started writing songs i jumped in on the lyrics so they've already already been um uh thinking that way anyway i had loads of poet poems and a big huge you know folder and uh, my brother was a good lyricist too so we we started okay we had two lyricists in the band and well, let's write songs then, because you know that we had instrumentals, but we we're gonna like try and write some more songs so that we just do that. So I write melodies with Mark, or or Wally comes in with tunes, and Mike's a good tunesman. So immediately we're just all stepping up to try and do something we never really planned to do, and it's just I think that's the that's the you know that's the way it you you know you I think you need to confront life. It's like you might not actually go to you not hit this target you're aiming for on the on the dartboard, but you might actually find. This other little spot that really suits you better that you just oh let's try that then you know we're going playing around in that little room for a while and it just turned turned out that this this direction yielded a lot of popularity and people liked it so we carried on we, we became songwriters and we never really never really planned to do that I don't think at that time I, I was planning to be an arranger and Mark wanted to be a drummer and all that kind of stuff so I just think it's that mentality I try to put that across to young musicians as well like a lot of particularly drummers I say listen man you know you don't want to just sit the back working on your your chops and getting your your great fill into the second chorus you know you, you want to be writing some lyrics or maybe put your hands on a keyboard and come out with some chords you know so you're you're part of the whole creative thing and and I think that's the, the mentality of that band right across the board was like that that we we would just step up to the plate and try stuff and we just turned out that we could you know some of my early lyrics are really embarrassing but at least, at least I got some bad songs out of the way and I improved and you know and I I spent a lot of time with it and, and we wrote some good songs so I mean, it's just that whole idea of being a, an artist a creative musician on all fronts you're not just a drummer you're not just a bass player you you're thinking about it and then later the production you know you think about everything you know that was the mentality of that band. Let's shift our focus over to a couple of Level 42 albums. And, and actually, I want to throw this over to uh, Uwe. I think he wants to ask you about Standing in the Light. Yeah, Phil, what I want to ask you is um, Standing in the Light was produced by Larry Dunn and Verdine White, uh, which uh, must have been a big change for the band in terms of selling records. And in a note, I have read that you or another band member as English people had missed the English rain during the recordings. What's behind this message? Well, yeah, Larry was. I mean, Mike Lindup is 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 got a, a a white father and a black mother, so he's like the the only black guy in the band essentially, and like so it was you know he I thought Larry Larry and Vadim thought they could really relate to Mike uh, to to Mike, but Mike Mike has the most proper English voice you'll ever hear, so he talks really correctly. <laughs> so we, we 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 jumped on swear words that they were using, which I won't say online. Very quickly because we loved all that sort of thing. But Mike was Mike was really kind of distraught. I remember like one time in the studio, Mike Mike was doing a vocal and and um, and he stopped the tape and said, "Can we go back? Can we can can we go uh, in the middle?" And then Larry Larry said, "Okay, Mike." Put and he took the talk talk back down and said he turned around and we went in the middle. In the middle. <laughs> in the and like, <laughs> he just looked at me and said, Black guys don't talk like this. <laughs> England, he's surely going to talk like, like a cockney or something. You know? So he, he was free, he freaked out. So, I mean, Larry and Vadim were just hilarious. They were just so much fun. And they were really, I mean, they were the most supportive guys because they knew the whole. You know, they knew the success route and what it took, and and they and the Earth Wind Fire were very, a very, 
a thoughtful band. They they made steps very very consciously. They didn't they didn't you know go from the the funk over into the kind of funk pop thing uh, by accident. You know it was, it was these were considered decisions. So we got to LA and there was all these songwriters lined up to work with us to write this album with us to have hits. You know like the record company said we want these guys to have hits and. And all of a sudden, we, we're confronted with this idea that people are going to write songs for us, that we're going to be given songs like they do in LA. You know, they like, and we and we said we tried it. We, we I think there's a couple of songs. I think Micro Kid on that album has got six songwriters on it, and I think Dance on Heavy Weather's got about five. Yeah. And we and we said we can't do this, man. We, we know we, we, it's our thing. We've got to do our thing. And to their credit, Larry and Verdeen absolutely supported us. And um, luckily, we came up with a track, which was actually the, a last-minute addition to the album, which was a genuine hit in England. It was top 10 in England. That was called The Sun Goes Down. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was... I mean, the thing about Level 42, we, we we called these songs... I don't know if you know the expression, that saved your bacon, which is an English expression if somebody sort of gets gets you out of a jam, you know. And, and we called these songs... It happened over four years, bacon-saving songs. Like, we'd always have the last-minute addition to the, the album would be the hit. And like it happened on on the pursuit of accents, we had the Chinese way, which was a top thirty, yeah. and that that you know got the record company off our back for a while. And then the sun goes down was like a last minute. It was only only two takes were done, and the following day Wally Badu had to leave, the keyboard player who actually wrote the majority of that song. He left, and and because Larry and Bidin said, "We have, I think we've got a single. Can you try?" You know, and we came up with a hit, and then Wally left. You know, it was like one of those things that was top ten. And the following year, the the, hot, the track "Hot Water" was was a jam that we cut down into a single, and that was a last minute thing, and that. But that was the hit. So we were, we were, we kept going year by year with having an amazing following, but you know, with some commercial success. But the thing about Standing the Light was going to America, and then it was uh, the pressure was on to then become this band that was going to sell more. And actually, we did have a gold record, so it, was, it, it did it, it was progress. But um, became aware of more of the more cynical side of the music industry at that point because it was okay. There's this pressure now to. Uh, and, there, um, and, and there are people around that are going to try and distort what we're about because they want us to have hit records like an Earth, Wind & Fire type situation. And they really want us to, they wanted us to come back to the UK with Let's Groove Tonight. That's what the label wanted us to do. They want mm-hmm. Let's Groove Tonight, you know, in a special light, baby. Yeah, they wanted us to do that black R&B thing in a white, with white guys. And we were talking about, uh, I was talking, you know, I was writing songs like I Want Eyes, which is about, you know, like, but war and an anti-war song essentially and about you know sort of protest song god mm-hmm. damn it and you know the, the record company were going you can't do this in this over and i said why why can't we do this because marvin Gaye was singing these songs um stevie wonder was singing about this stuff i mean sting peter gabriel artists that i grew up with uh, all singing about issues other than i love you baby you know yeah. so we but we struggled with that they they were saying why don't you do a cover of nature boy and i said what if we did that, we'd be like a Brit funk band. We'd be gone in six months, you know. And the fact that we actually were writing songs based on the writings of Herman Hess or, you know, or this kind of thing. I even wrote a song based on uh, uh, Arthur Kessler book, you know, which that freaked them out, you know. But it was like, well, this is my band. I slept on floors to do this. We're actually selling out these venues and we, we're at least going silver and we, you know, we went gold in the last... You know, why don't you just leave us alone and let us, let us grow organically and we'll get to this place maybe that we'll you'll be happy with it maybe we won't but at least we're make we're, we're never in the red with them we're always in the black you know so I, I resented that pressure and i got into a lot of trouble with them as a result i would mouth off about it and, and i'll be banned from interviews you know because <laughs> i'm quite <laughs> militant, actually I look, I look like a nice guy but actually when it comes to these things i get really up up in arms you know <laughs> i want to move on to uh the pursuit of accidents album from 1982 and and you know just 
from a personal note, it's it's probably my favorite Level 42 album. And, you know, songs like, you know, Are You Hearing What I Hear, Eyes Water Falling, Weave Your Spell, the title track. I mean, these these songs seems to be, they kind of, to me, they kind of seem to be an extension of that debut album. And, you know, but the band really seemed to, in my opinion, just really seemed to gel on this one. It seemed like just a really tight album. Yeah, I think, I think it was some good stuff. I think it was a very... Um so unselfconscious album. I think we just did what we what we, prob- we we did what we what we were able to at the time. We had, that was it. You know, we put it all on the table. We didn't have anything else going on. So I think we struggled with some of the lyrics. I think some of the, I think some of the strong song structures are a little bit laboured occasionally. Like uh, I, I can't remember the titles. But the the thing about Ch- the Chinese Way, which is a kind of interesting, uh, was one of our first sort of areas where we kind of matched the production to the lyric with Chinese, you know, sort of. Eastern sounds and things like that. There, there is a lyric there which I'm not going to repeat on radio is, or, or on, on the podcast. I'm not going to say it again, but it's the worst lyric of all time. And I and I and I, and I did it. I did the lyric in two hours. So that's and I think I was maybe tongue in cheek, but it is slightly embarrassing. So I'll leave you to work that out. <laughs> but, but it's like it, it is a band. It is a band sort of trying to find their way. In the first album, like you do, you, you know, you pour all your ideas into it, and and and, and it had a, a very cohesive um, a feeling to it. And the second album. You know, it was like was strong, but there was there was I think we we're struggling with where we we might go. Mm-hmm. And by the time we got to the third album, we had it was all it was all songs. There was no instrumentals. We had instrumental sections, but yeah. we 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 were just getting. I, th- I think there's maybe is there one instrumental on Pursuit Act? No, there's two, isn't there? And and I think there's this period where we were going. Oh, what are we now? Are we are we going to carry on with this idea, or are we going to move away from that? And we, I think we were we were we were getting to move away from the idea of actually mm-hmm. being an instrumental band. Which is probably unfortunate because there probably was a place for that in our future, but we, we just went this other direction, you know. But I think it, Pursuit of, I always love playing Pursuit of Accidents, the actual tra- track live, because it was it was actually a jam, you know, it was just a, a groove in the studio we started playing. It was 20 minutes long, we cut it down to eight minutes long, and Wally put some great top lines on it. It was great fun to play that live. Um, four on the floor. You know that's yep. that's how that band looked. I mean, generally the best things were four on the floor or very simple backbeat, and Mark could just do his thing over the top, and it's just brilliant, you know, to play that. The energy of that. Well, I want to jump ahead to 1985 and the re- release of uh, World Machine, which obviously was a huge commercial success, and it brought the band, you know, notoriety here in the states as well. But but this was also an album where the song styles changed, and arguably the overall sound of the band. And was there pressure by the record company to produce hits, or was it just a band decision to to kind of change your focus? As you were mentioning a second ago, you know, you're looking for sort of a a different direction with with. Uh, you know, heading away from instrumentals, going into more, you know, lyrical-based songs. Tell us about this transformation of the band during this time period. Well, there was a meeting at the end of 1984 where we'd, we'd done the fourth album, True Colors, and that, there was a lot of dark matter on that album. There was a lot of, you know, I was listening to a lot of, um, I mean, you know, when, when The Police can have an album like Synchronicity, which is based, the, the title comes from a concept by Carl Jung, mm-hmm. and the, the, the title track is based on the writings of Carl Jung, and it sells nearly 20 million copies around the world, and it's, it's huge. I know it's essentially to do with Every Breath You Take, but it's still massive, and you have these ideas out there, and there's, there's songs like Tea in the Sahara based on books. I don't understand why that we... You know, I, I, I took that as a form of inspiration. There's, there's inspiration from writings by Tom Wolfe, you know, Arthur Kessler, mm-hmm. Herman Hess, and this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But there's, there's a lot of dark stuff. The label were going, look, it's kind of like, you know, it, it's kind of going, you know, where are you going with this? You know, and like... Then internal pressures within the band started to build up, and other members were maybe Mark was dissatisfied with singing some of that material because we didn't do many of those songs live actually. 
Um, but but then but I sat down with Mark and all the other guys individually and collectively and said we should do it ourselves. We should get Wally, get a great engineer, and we'll produce ourselves the next record because we had great times with Larry. We had great times with Ken Scott. That was an honor, an absolute honor working with him. He was an absolutely incredible producer engineer. But we just felt that we were too we were too we, we were unproducible at that point. We need to do it ourselves and step up. But we also knew that we needed to sort of. Um, maybe try and see if we could uh, define our songwriting a bit more. But actually, the, the album was written in the same way all the other albums were written. It was just produced differently. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could have, you know, the songs could have been done the way they were done the year before, and they would have sounded a bit darker. But they, we just wrote, to, me and Mark wrote together, I think there's three compositions we did, just me and him. And there's, uh, I mean, the, the big hit from that record, Something About You, was an idea that me and Mike had a year before. We could have been on True Colors with that, but we didn't have a verse and then we got a verse, and, it, and then, it went on, then it went on to World Machine, and when Mark and Wally came up with a verse. So that was a period where it was the sound of that record, I think, more than anything, was, was, was not necessarily the songs, because actually the, the band was struggling at that point. Me and Mark were having problems, and you know, uh, and a lot of the songs are actually quite, they're not positive. You know, there's a lot of, you know, like people talk about Fleetwood Mac rumors being an extraordinary record. You know, there's two couples splitting up, and the band's, tensions and all of that is put on that record you know band members you know yelling at each other like particularly stevie nicks and um uh the guitar player's name come on i can't remember jeez come in name uh lindsey bunkingham lindsey and stevie were splitting up and they were singing songs to each other and maybe lindsey was a bit more aggressive about it than stevie was you know it's a bit unfortunate with some of the things that were said but uh, i mean me and mark were having a torrid time and i was i left the studio for a period of time for about a week because it was all getting a bit much and I went away and wrote the lyrics that I had to write. And I came back. And a lot, a lot of those songs are about me. I should have left. I actually left the band at the end of that year. Yeah. Or I even left the band before they went on the road. And I, then they came around and we, we agreed to um, carry on. But like it was, uh, you know, songs like World Machine, Leave Me Now, and A Physical Presence are all about those kinds of, that feeling of alienation or separation from, or disconnection, you know. So it's not a very happy record, but the sound overall is, is kind of up. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of interesting. I think that's interesting about pop music. A lot of the pop music I like is like, I mean, ABBA's a classic example. I'm not, a, wasn't a huge ABBA fan, but a lot of those lyrics are very dark. Yeah. But the but the songs sound beautiful and up tempo, and people are dancing. It's great. It sounds. But I love that. It's almost like subversive. You know, you get in there with a, a little bit of a uh, a bit more depth to things. You know. Mm-hmm. So um, it was a conscious decision to make a record that was uh, more defined an overall sound but also it was a conscious decision to to do it ourselves with wally and and i, and I think it was a great uh, i think we did really well i mean there's a couple of songs that may I, I wouldn't do again but i think we did all right it was just that the, the t- internal tensions of the band at that time meant that it wasn't a happy period mm-hmm. so when you uh, when you're mentioning the tensions within the band phil what was happening in terms of the chemistry with the band members well uh, me and Mark were struggling, you know. Me and Mark were on different paths at that time, you know. Mark, uh, Mark was was heading in a different direction, you know, and it was difficult because it was odd because I was putting words in his mouth, you know. I was the lyricist for most of that stuff. My brother also contributed a lot, but I think I did. There was eight out of nine songs I co-wrote, eight of them. Uh, there's nine songs in there. I co-wrote eight of the nine songs. So it's very interesting that Mark was uncomfortable, I think, with some of the musical ideas that I had. And Mark's agenda was a bit different. I, I'm not going to slag him off or anything like that. He's just he was just going in a different direction. And I felt there was some there was some trust issues as to how we get to go forward. And 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 you know, creatively, it was it was a struggle. You know, bands we were very young, very stupid. 
and we didn't realize quite in, you know what we had the power that we had that we you know all we had to do was stick together and all the things that maybe some members of the band wanted like you know the 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 benefits of being in a band would have come anyway it's just it was just a, it was just a struggle and i and i feel I think maybe that's why we made music the way we did because there were tensions like that. And if we'd all be happy and getting on really well, maybe we would have been as interesting, you know. But uh, you know, it was it was hard. It's not easy because actually at the end of the year I left the band, and then I and then I came back again at the beginning of '86 to do the rest of it. The, and then I followed, and I left the band 18 months later. I should have left the band at that point because really my time was over. Um, it's just personal stuff between me and Mark. Really, it's not. Not stuff you want to relate. It's boring anyway. It's, it's, it's stuff that goes on between pretty silly, silly young people in situations, and we don't. You never realize. You, you never realize at that age what you have. You take it for granted. We we were being a bit silly, but it wasn't a good time for us, you know. Unfortunately. Well, let's uh, move away from Level Forty Two for a second, and let's talk about your two thousand nine release, uh, solo release. It was your first solo album called Watertight, and. For so much of your career, you had been involved in bands, and you know, so you were. So, were you surprised yourself that it took you know this long to produce a solo project? Had you wanted to do something prior to two thousand nine? Not really. I mean, I did. I did do a lot of stuff in the in the. I didn't really relate to the nineties. Really, I, I was kind of in another space. I mean, to be honest, uh, to be brutally honest about it, I left the band in not the happiest frame of mind. I was actually. Um, you know, I had a lot of a lot of problems, and I, and I actually had a massive breakdown. So, like, I, I actually wasn't really able to play live for a while because of central nervous systems. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Can I say it like that? So, it took a long time, and I went in a different direction. I sort of, you know, I had my family. I've been on the road all my twenties. You know, I've been on the road solid for eight years. I just, I, I just couldn't do it again. I, I actually was asked to do a lot of stuff in that in the initial period after I left the band. I couldn't do it. I didn't want to do it, I, and I just went away. I actually left music for a while. But the thing was, I was writing and writing and writing and messing around and ideas that never got released. And through the the, the 2000s, it, it it was just a kind of domestic situation because I was writing and working with artists and I was going to Italy a lot. I had a friend there and I was record, beginning to record again. But then my, my marriage ended and um, I'm not, I don't want to be poor little me situation. My mum died. It was a very, very difficult time. And I ended up looking after the kids because the kids lived with me. So that was it, you know, for that period of time. Until the end of until 2010, I was actually a single parent for for, for six years. So mm. I, I I was writing, and I and I, even some of these ideas on on my album. I mean, a couple of the ideas go back to the 90s, but I couldn't do anything. I couldn't I couldn't record, and I actually did record you that period, but it was like a bit here, a bit there. It took five years to do it. So it was like, so you just say, well, this is this is my life now. I'm a single parent. I have these two kids to raise, and I have three kids, but the older one wasn't wasn't there. And that's it, you know. So it just was a series of things because I probably would have got very active in the uh, early two thousands. I was I was playing drums again. I was working with different people, but 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 th- th- things kind of went wrong again. And that's just you know that's just you rolling with the punches of life. But the reality is, I, I've got like I'm, I've got to finish a new album by the end of June. I've got so many ideas. I've got iPods and and mini this full of piano ideas and chord progressions. So I, I'm in the same situation now as when I was in my early 20s, of coming through my youth and all the things you thought about for years, all these bits of ideas. Because songwriting is, I think, songwriting is, is sometimes is a collection of bits. You have all these bits and these little things you've thought about so that you come to a place where you need a bridge, you come to a place where you need a, a chorus or, or a pre-chorus, and you've got this bit, you know, and, you've, and it just all starts to come out of your mind, and like lyrical ideas. So I feel like that now, which is really interesting. I'm, I'm in my mid-50s, so I feel like, I'm armed to the teeth with a whole load of ideas, and I've got about three projects to look at in the next twelve months that are, that really are going to happen. 
and I'm really ready to go because I, I feel very, you know, I don't feel like I'm bereft of ideas. I feel ready to go, you know. So that's the good thing about it. I mean, I wish I'd be more proactive. I wish I'd, I could have gone straight out of level 42 and, and made a lot of music with people and made a contribution, but I wasn't that, that sort of shape then, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, Watertight was, I mean, Eddie and I were just talking about this before the uh, interview. Um, it, it came out a few years ago, but it's it's a fabulous album. And uh, one of the singers you, in, I think, sings uh, several tracks was Bernice Scott. And tell okay. me about your relationship with Bernice and how you brought her on for this project. Well, she's the daughter of Robin Scott, the, you know, the pop music guy. So I've known Berenice. Berenice was born the year that we did Record of the Mountain Studios. <laughs> and like, she was a baby there with, with uh, yeah. you know, Bridget, her mother. It's a very you know, interesting time. So my, my, my girlfriend came out with my son who was a baby and blah, blah, blah. It was like really weird. But I mean, Berenice is, you know, she's really, she's in her early 30s now. She's an up and she's kind of worked with a lot of people lately. And she's really getting her groove on now. She's really coming into her own and starting to have a voice, mm-hmm. and have a really flexible voice, and to write really great songs. She's actually recording a load of videos at Abbey Road this week, this Saturday. And she she's going to be... I mean, the next album I'm doing will have a number of singers on it because you know, Berenice has this beautiful sound. Actually, Berenice's sound then is, is a lot more Nordic and calm than it is now. She can actually... She's got a lot more movement in her singing, and she's, you know, she's a great... She's a really great musician now. So mm-hmm. I'll... Work with her again. In fact, this morning, actually, I got a text from her saying she's available to do this one song that I'm recording this Saturday. So that's really cool. But she's, you know, she's the daughter of Robin, you know, and she just had this voice. That's really cool. I mean, I might, I might have used one or two other singers on certain tracks because at that time, Berenice didn't have that ability to extemporize so much. Mm-hmm. So maybe that would have been quite cool. But the overall sound is great. And, you know, she was, you know, she was such a guest to work with. And might, you know, might lend it some of the other tracks. So, I mean, going forward, I have like maybe four tracks done for the next thing, and they have all those different singers on them, and I quite like that vibe because. And actually, I'm going to sing on the next album, believe it or not. I'm going to wow. actually. Oh yeah. Yeah, I'm doing it because I, I spoke to Jeremy Stacey, this incredible drummer. I'm, I'm recording at his studio. I've got so much love from these guys. You reckon on these great drummers, and he he heard the demo that I did, and what, all I'm doing with the demos is banging on the piano, singing away, because I don't want to do demos where there's any kind of idea of what the musicians that are coming in might do. And even on the next album, there's two tracks that are going to be another drummer's playing on. Ash Stone's going to play on it, so I'm going to play keyboards and and maybe sing this one track, and then Berenice. And I'm I'm just thinking like that now. I, I, the the all round idea of the experience of, of of being a creative musician that it doesn't. I don't have to play the drums, and actually Ash. Ash is Ash sounds an incredible groove. Is probably the best pocket in England, made alongside Carl Brazil and, and Jeremy. These incredible drummers, and he's right for these tracks. I'm 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 not the guy for these these songs that I've written, which is really cool to think like that. And um, the project I'm the other project I'm doing with Wally is much is kind of funkier. So definitely I'm the guy for that. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna grab that with both hands. But you know, so this 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 band I'm recording with the weekend is gonna these, these two tunes will go on the album and. I mean, I'm, I don't know. Now I'm in a position where I can actually promote music. I'm in London. I've got getting a group together. I'm starting to play around London, and hopefully I'll be able to start doing these kinds of gigs where I can go and do a couple of gigs here and there. And you know, if people will have me, I've just been to Paris. To, to a friend of mine is playing sort of club. I think I can do that kind of thing. I can go here and play a couple of gigs, so I can promote this music because this album you're talking about, I haven't, I haven't been able to promote it. So it, to, to a large extent, this is great to have it on the radio. You're talking about because. You know, nobody's nobody's talked about it, you know. So, and that's down to me because I've been able to live and and all that kind of thing. And you need to be visible in this world, and I'm, and I'm not really. Um, so that's if you make music, then the, the next thing you have to do is honour it all by getting it out before the public and having people hear it. And mm-hmm. that's the that's the thing I'm trying to organise now. 
Hey Phil, several songs on Watertight have odd time signatures like Innocent Abroad and Stop Clocks. Do you love this 7-8 rhythms? I do. I would love some. <laughs> I saw Cobham. I saw Cobham at Ronnie Scott's recently. In fact, Mike. I was playing with Mike Lindup and his. I'm playing in Mike Lindup's sort of band now, like his quartet, and like we played at Ronnie supporting Billy Cobham, which was just an incredible honour. And but and Billy's got like tunes in 27, 16 and stuff, you know. And I was talking to the musicians, going, "How do you how do you count that?" And you're buying. What is it? Seven, seven plus blah, whatever you know. Like and, he, um, and the comedian, the keyboard player, said, "Well, actually, we're just left to work it out." And and I and I, and I was thinking, well, I'd never, I couldn't really go there. I, I don't feel comfortable in in eleven or nine. Really, I feel comfortable. And sevens of sevens a really comfortable time signature, and it's a lot of Greek wedding music is in seven, eight, and, and people dance to this stuff, you know. And like so, it's just. It's just a bit of an odd one, but I just feel it's like um, I think what what I like about seven eight is because you have that you know the, the, you a missing eighth beat you know you actually the melodies can happen you kind of get on with the melody and I, I've actually tried to put seven eight tunes into four four and it just doesn't work you know because because of that last lost eighth beat you know you actually you can tunes can get on with it you know I I, I like playing it you know so I, I probably wouldn't I don't think I'm going to be recording anytime soon in um, in 12, uh, sorry, in 11s or, or 15s, but, you know, I'm not, it's not fusion, you know, so, but I, I think seven works in a pop music idiom, although what I try and do with it, like with, with this track, Innocent Abroad, I, I come up with a bass line which goes across the seven and actually feels like it's, it makes it sound like it's in four, so I think you can kind of get away with it, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I want to take another break, and let's listen to another track from Phil's solo album called Watertight, and this is a track called Cool Man, Yeah. Sweet life. 
You know, another track, uh, Phil, that's just really a standout is your first track. It's called Color of My Pain. And, you know, the first time that I, um, before I even listened to this album a while back, um, and I noticed that it was going to be a different song right away. And let me tell you the clue that I had was that it was over seven minutes long. It was seven, seven twenty, seven thirty, and and that tells me an awful lot, right? Right there, it tells me this artist uh, he found something, he wanted to make it groove, he wanted to 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 lengthen the vibe and the feel of this thing. It was it was brilliant. It was really lovely, and uh, um, I appreciate you sort of letting loose on this beautiful ballad. And it's uh, the the chord progressions are are awesome. Um, and I think it's just uh, one of those that, that's just going to become one of our favorites, and it has already. Thanks. I mean, I, I, yeah, I'm very proud to play that song live. It's actually not the the lyrics are about the kind of thing you pour everything you got into this stuff. You know, so the lyrics are about obviously the stuff of you know, gee, you know, you're on the floor, and it's mm-hmm. like, but it it's like because you know, you know, that period of when I went, I lost my, you know, my marriage. You know, which is a long. You know, this is the girl girl I grew up with, the Isle of Wight with, and I lost that marriage and. Uh, my mum in the same year. You know, when, when that hits you, you, you. I mean, I'm I'm so blessed to have an outlet for this stuff to actually write a song, and you don't even have to know what that's about. But at least I got it out of my system, and it inspired that vibe because the vibe is kind of it's in that kind of quite emotional place. But you know what? You know, you might think I'm quite, you know, like I'm quite brave. Actually, I'm probably weak because I, I can't. I just can't bring myself to cut things down, you know. And I like, you know, the guitarist I worked with, Fabio, put this beautiful outro on. We, we worked on it together, and it wasn't going to fit into the groove. So we got to put that outro down, man, you know. And all the sort of stuff in the outro from the, you know, where the, there's a lot of like cool chanting, you know, ideas. Yeah. And you know, you know, I've, I've just written a song uh, which Berenice, I want Berenice to, to sing, and um, it's three and a half minutes long. It actually ends at three and a half minutes, and I've never achieved this in the whole course of my life. Because I, I, all the stuff, level forty-two stuff, will be five minutes, and we chop it down to be a single. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I find it, I find a struggle to actually do that. I mean, like the Beatles songs, often are two minutes or whatever, you know. But uh, I'm really proud of myself. But on the other hand, when you get like a, a mood and a vibe, and it can be intense. Well, I mean, you know, what? Why, why should you just let go of stuff? And there, there are things like that. I mean, this, this is, I would call this album the outro album because I definitely could have ended about four of those songs after about four minutes, but I just, I just let the outros, I just let it go, you know? And it might not be the best thing for, you know, if you want to get a record deal, because they go, they don't think that, they don't actually think, well, actually, you, you, you could fade it, uh-huh. but let's go, what are you up to? You know, because this is the, the response I did get. And actually, for the publisher, I did, I think, you know, I mean, they've asked me to see if any of the songs might be, you know, could somebody else do these songs? But I've actually done, you know, shorter versions of them. But and it's my album. You know, I do, I do. You know, I just let them go. You know, seven minutes. You know, what the hell? <laughs> but I, probably, I don't think I'll do another seven minutes track again for a while. I, you know, I think the longest on the next album will be five and a half minutes. So that's that's cool. And actually, I've got a lot more ideas. I want to cram them in. So you know, I'm gonna have to cut cut it down. But thanks for saying that. I, re- I really like that track, and I love playing that track because it's just. It's very intense, you know. And when you're working with someone like your bass player, Yolanda Charles, this is a friend of mine, is just, you know, incredible bass player. Um, it can be a really intense groove. It's really good fun just to get really, you know, really dig down into that sort of groove. Mm-hmm. Love it. Hey Phil, another track on your solo album, Watertight, is one that surprisingly features no percussion at all. It's simply piano and strings, and uh, of course, uh, you being on piano, and we've got uh, Mats Jakisic, if I'm pronouncing that right, on strings. And, you know, perhaps this is one of the most intriguing and beautiful compositions on the album. So uh, let's take a short break, and I want to check out this track. And the title is Dark Actress. Mm-hmm. 
Hey, well, hey, Phil, um, we're running short on time, and, and but I do want to tell you that we're uh, we're really pleased. I know I can speak for Eddie and Uve that we're really pleased to hear that you've got uh, some new material in the works, and yes. it sounds like 2013 is going to turn out to be a pretty busy year for you. And uh, we really appreciate all the time you've taken uh, – here with us on Inside Music Cast, and we'll definitely keep in touch because we're going to want to, you know, uh, talk about this new album when it comes out, and 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 give our fans, our, our listeners, uh, more information about it. And actually, while I have you, is there uh, any website you'd like to promote, or any place that you'd like to uh, send our listeners to to find out more information about you? Well, I've got I have I've got a website, feelgood dot com, but it's, it's being redesigned at the moment. So it's not online at the moment, but it okay. will be soon. I've got a guy looking into that, you know. And I've been a bit slack on that side of things, but I mean, the whole world out there, Bandcamp and all this sort of stuff is like it's like kind of really kind of a bit freaky for me. But I've got people to help me try and get myself into that world because I think going forward, I, I will actually like to use Bandcamp to to just to let music like to put stuff out there, you know, giveaway music, but also just because there's a lot so much going on that uh, yeah. it's, it's silly to it's silly to think of it like we'll build up and do an album because maybe that way of thinking maybe is, is is going anyway. But just to be able to put out tracks, so the Bandcamp site will be soon, and that'll be linked from the website. But you know, I really appreciate you having me on the show. It's great, and I, and it's, I, really, I really appreciate your comments about the album. It really makes me feel great. You know, and it's nice to it's nice for people to hear it. And, and you you just you just I was talking about this with Ash Stone, this great drummer. It's not about ego and about feeling, hey, you know, I'm I'm, I'm this and that and the other. But it's about like like feeling that you're, what you're doing means something. That has something that your peers can actually identify with. You're you're one of the you know you you could be acceptable on the scene as a musician and maybe a songwriter. You could actually go like you hold your head up with these people that you admire and that's that's really what it's all about about making contribution and i just you know when you want to so when you say that to me like you know that you like this album this makes you feel great you know so along with the sun we have in southeast london it's really made my day you know so <laughs> i'm gonna <laughs> well, go down to brixton now and have a have a have a i have a swim in the lido it's freezing and i go to brixton <laughs> and have a crepe and a cappuccino and, and celebrate <laughs> <laughs> well, that <laughs> sounds good well i also wanted to thank uve reith uh in germany for joining us today thanks a lot uve yeah, thanks. Yeah. Thank you, Rick and Eddie. And thank you, Phil, for uh, making your time uh, with us you know, on, on Inside Music Cast. And thank you, Uwe. Thanks for coming by at the Messer and, and doing that. I really appreciate it, you know. Yes. I'll see you right. next Well, i maybe see you before, but I'll definitely see you next year at the Messer. I'm going to go back. Okay, we will yeah. meet again. Thank you, Phil. <laughs> uh, All Eddie, right. Th- yeah, thanks for your time, Eddie, as well. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Mate. Thanks again, Phil. We'll talk to you soon. We'll try to keep up uh, with you uh, with more of your endeavors down the road here. Great stuff. Thanks, Rick. I really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Special thanks to Phil Gould for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. We'd also like to thank our correspondents, Kim Riley, Brian Pearson, Scott Gross, Max Zape, Mikhail Ingstrom, Uwe Reith, Scott Sheriff, and Don Brydup for their continued support and content development for Inside Music Cast. Inside Music Cast is powered by Cabello Associates and Earshot Audio Post. For information about becoming a sponsor and sharing your message with thousands of music fans around the world, please visit InsideMusicCast.com for contact information. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast.